Um, how far into your investigations did you actually get before you decided that you were going to write a book about this, Ross? Uh, I, I'd always wanted to write a book because one of the joys of being an investigative journalist is you can indulge your curiosity and you can use it under the pretext of investigative journalism. I mean, it's a joy to be able to ring somebody up and say, hey, I'm a journalist and I'm writing a book. I'm investigating this. Can you tell me everything you know about X, Y, and Z? And it invests you with a certain amount of power and they don't really have to talk to you if they don't want to. But I, what I found joyous for me, and, and this was, I suppose, the breakthrough point, I was doing a full-time job and I thought, how would I crack the UFO story if I wanted to crack it? And I thought, I know one of the big problems for people that work in defence and intelligence that are my sources increasingly is they communicate with me on different encrypted apps. They communicate with me in um, online sites. You know, we have to use extraordinarily complicated methods to protect them from being detected. And so I knew that if I wrote to Scientist X in the United States uh, saying I'm doing a book on UFOs, if I did that on email, I'd leave an electronic trail. And I had their phone numbers in many cases because the joys of America is you can literally find anybody with a phone number directory with a bit of application. And so I found the phone numbers for people who I knew were working at Area 51, um, China Lake. I just did a a standard investigative journalist's brief on the people that I think would know shit. And um, I wrote 160 something letters and posted them using good old fashioned stamps, thinking that sending something by mail to a certain degree, it invests a degree of autonomy in a person. It gives them a sense of control because they're the one that then makes the decision to contact me on signal or telegram or, or uh, to ring me on um, another kind of encrypted app, uh, Proton Mail, that sort of stuff. And that's what I did. So I wrote to 160 people and waited. And I'm doing my day job at 60 minutes at the time. And then all of a sudden, I started getting these letters back. And people started ringing me. And I remember there was one guy in particular, and he was absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified. And he rang me on signal and he was in a park and he'd literally left the campus of the aerospace company where he was working, walked down the street to a public park and he was whispering and I could hear kids playing in the playground. And he started talking about the program and how he'd been invited onto the program. And I said, just sorry, roll back a little bit. I said, what's the program? And he went, <laughs> he did laugh. He went, the reverse engineering program. And I said, is this some kind of a hustle? I said, are you winding me up? And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean winding up. And I, I had to explain what winding up meant. And, um, and then he, um, he told me he was a scientist who was working for an aerospace company uh, and they were involved in analyzing and attempting to re-engineer non-human technology wow and uh now as a journalist you don't immediately one of the problems i have with ufology is when somebody tells me something like that i can't immediately go away right. and yeah. go yeah. you know I this can't is this is the that. truth this is the way yeah, yeah. Okay. and so then and and this is my big reveal to you um 
there was one guy in particular who I figured, and the, the way you do this as a, as a journalist is, it's the way I do any story, is I build up a master contact list. I'll quite often draw a map on my wall of all of the people who were in the decision-making process for an event or an, an issue. And I, I work my way through who those people are, where they are now, and whether there's a reason why they might want to talk to me. And so one of the people that I wrote to was a guy, drumroll, called Nat Kovitz, who was the director of science and technology development for the US Navy. He was literally the boffin, the chief geek for the US Navy for well on 30 years. And I was shocked when this beautiful man rang me out of the blue and just wouldn't stop talking. Um, and it turned out, sadly, Nat was dying of cancer. And I, I have to admit, I'd been very circumspect about what I'd said I wanted to talk to him about. And I had hinted that I was interested in more fringe areas of his job, but we talked for weeks about early drone technology that he was involved in developing. He told me a funny story about how um, the Secret Service used these um, uh, electromagnetic blockers to stop anything from flying over the presidential ranch when George Bush Sr. was the president and um, one of his daughters was getting married. And he told me that the US uh, Navy that he was working with were testing a brand new drone. It was very early drone technology. And um, he had a Baltimore uh, address, but he had a Brooklyn accent. And he went, oh, yeah, we parked that thing about a meter in the ground, two feet in the ground. I think he, he used his feet. Um, two feet in the ground, he said, that was the end of the drone program. And um, and then after weeks of this kind of conversation, it was becoming very obvious to me that um, he knew what I was really wanting to talk to him about. And then completely out of the blue one day, he said to me, Ras, why don't you just ask me the question? And so my heart's beating at 100 miles an hour at that point. And I said... Okay, Nat, I'll, I'll ask you this way. Now, you understand what it means when you're read into a project. Um, if you're read into a project, uh, you are essentially taken through the security classifications that are necessary for you to understand what that project's about. And you, you are read in and you sign a, an agreement that you will abide by the national security classifications for that special compartmented intelligence. And so I used the terminology that we'd been talking about for previous projects that he told me about. And I said, Nat, were you ever read into a UFO retrieval and re-engineering program? And I'm waiting and there's no, there's no reply at the end of the line. And there's this kind of hiss, trans-Pacific hiss. And then back comes, yes, very firm. 
and I almost fall off my chair. And I, <laughs> I go, oh, so, sorry. Um, I, I thought he was going to deny to me, you know, and say flatly no. And he'd obviously made the decision. I think he'd just gone, oh, fuck it, you know. And he was sadly, God bless him, he was dead in about three or four months. And so I figured at one stage, yeah, she said to me, she says, oh, what are they going to do to me? What are they going to do to me? And then he said, I, I then asked the next question. I said, um, so can I just clarify? You said you were read into a UFO retrieval program. I said, how many were you told had been retrieved? Multiple. And I went, multiple? I said, did you ever see these? And he went, no. He was very short, very brief in his answers. And, and I said, so are you saying, though, that you were told that there is an active program underway to re-engineer this technology? Yes. And then he was getting irksome with me because he said something like, um, and I was never read out of it, so I probably shouldn't go any further. And so I sort of decided not to push him too hard. And so we spent another couple of weeks talking about other projects that he'd been involved in. I mean, it was just such a privilege to talk to him because he was there in the very peak of the Cold War with the US Navy building, you know, some of the most incredible technology that the US Navy is using. And their China Lake facility that they use for testing their technology is, you know, long the subject of UFO mysteries. Actually, by the way, one of the things I said to him, I said, oh, there's, there's all these rumours that you've got corridors underneath, you know, and subterranean chambers underneath China Lake. And he laughed and he says, not as far as I know. And he says, I think I'd know about it if there was. <laughs> and so I was, I was beginning to get a bit despondent because he told me that he was read into a UFO retrieval program. He told me that he was read into a program that was re re-engineering UFOs. And he really wouldn't tell me any more than that. At one stage, he said to me to protect you. Uh, meaning me. And so I sort of went sideways. He told me that he'd, um, he'd set up his own um, company where he was a specialist in a type of extremely sophisticated welding called electron beam welding, uh, EB welding. And uh, it's a type of welding that, that leaves a very, very faint, you don't get the same welt that you would get with a right. normal weld. And he had a company called, I think it's NKA, Nat Kovitz Associates. And uh, he did things like the sophisticated welds that held the C5 Galaxy undercarriage together, you know, bonding different types of metal. So he was very good. He was like an expert at bonding different types of metal together in really strong welds. And so when he was running that private company, after he'd left that senior role as kind of like senior geek at the US Navy, he gets a phone call from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Foreign Technology Division. And they ask him to come out at the Air Force's expense to Wright-Pat. And I just loved it at that point. I said, oh, were you taken down underground? And he goes, I was. And, um, and then I suddenly realised he's serious and he's just about to tell me, the clear inference, he's about to tell me that he's seen something not of this world. And this is his big give. And he describes being taken into this room and shown a large lump of metal that was incredibly light. 
And he says it was incredibly strong. It was like a bulkhead. It was clearly a bulkhead of some kind. And um, he said that he wouldn't name the, the metals involved, but he knew the metals involved. He recognized the metals involved. He didn't know whether they had different isotopic ratios from terrestrial isotopic ratios. But he was asked to look at the metals and to see whether the type of bonding that had been used was electron beam bonding, which is was and still is the, the best way of bonding these kind of metals. And uh, I forgot exactly what he said, but he said something to me like, I, 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 I could not explain what it was, that, that those metals were bonded at the atomic level. And he said, it's nothing I've ever seen before. He said, it, it's way beyond my science. Wow. And um, so essentially he was, and I said to him, I said, so are you saying that was extraterrestrial, not, not human technology? And he went, Russ, I just don't know. He says, I don't know what it was. He said, I'd sure like to find out. And so he put me onto a whole series of people. And God bless him. I actually get quite emotional when I think about him because he became quite a good friend. Um, I loved talking to him. And um, he introduced me to quite a number of people who, one of whom he knew was involved in the program and uh, others who he knew were on the periphery of the program. And as a result of those conversations, which were by and large on a background basis, not for attribution, I was suddenly finding my worldview was turned upside down because I can, I can kind of buy the idea that we have vehicles or craft from another dimension or another galaxy, or um, maybe it's a, another nation state that's developed incredibly advanced technology. But the, the notion that, that there were, oh, in fact, he also talked about bodies. He actually, when he was talking about recovered craft, he also told me he'd been briefed that there were recovered bodies. Oh my gosh. And so my worldview is like rocking at this stage. And I'm still thinking, whoa, I've just had one of the most senior scientists in the US Defense Department, former, admit to me that he was read into a UFO crash retrieval program. And that's why I wrote my book. <laughs> I, uh, I don't blame you for wanting to write a book after that. That is absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, what, what reason would a man like that have near the you know approach approaching near the end of his life to to spin a yarn and to uh you know try and fool you i think that, that that's just so so unlikely and uh and that's that's amazing did he did he ever give you any indication that we had any success in creating this type of technology and reverse engineering this type of technology he had no bloody idea but mm. i've spoken to well over 20 people now who are aware of a attempt by the US to re-engineer what, and the problem is none of these people are ever told that what they're working on is a technology from anywhere in particular. Course, they're just yeah. told, what they're told they're working on is just a very compartmented piece of te technology. And um, um, 
I'm sorry, I've forgotten the drift. What was your question again? Sorry. I was just saying that um, whether or not uh, that man in particular had told you that they'd had success in. Uh, oh yeah, no, no. And so, but 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 all of those people told me that none of them had been able to right to reintroduce crack, crack and, and so yeah. And this is where I have problems with the Lazar story because, mm. um, and and other people who claim that they've been much more advanced efforts to re-engineer technology, including, I think, even flying craft, which is one of the accounts that Lazar gives. If that's true, I've seen no evidence of that. I'm not right. saying he's a liar, by the way. I, I, I just haven't met the right people who are saying that um, it is true. What I was told consistently was the technology is mind-blowing and they are not in a position to be able to engineer it yet because it's just light years beyond what we have. It's it's a completely new type of physics is what one person said to me. Um, and you might be interested in this, Jay, because um, uh, of, the, of the sort of direction that your interests have taken. Without expanding on it, one of the people I spoke to told me that it had a lot to do with a mind interface connection mm -hmm. with the engineering yeah. that, that it was yeah. driven by some kind of consciousness or some kind of um, uh, intelligent connection with machinery that um, was beyond our understanding. Now I preface everything I've told you here with the fact that I'm, I'm not saying even now, I'm not saying that I believe that um, we have recovered UFOs, UAPs. Quite frankly, I, I'm I'm such a dogmatic skeptic on everything. I won't believe it really until I get to kick the tires of a, a TR3B. You know, I I, I want to be there. I don't think they have tires. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do think I cannot discount having heard it from yeah. Nat and and having heard it from multiple other sources. I am absolutely certain that the United States government has recovered non-human technology. Absolutely certain. And I think that that technology includes craft. And I cannot believe I'm saying that because I know that's your angle. And I know everybody will basically go, oh my God, Coulthard's basically said they're a craft. I'm not saying I know that for sure. All I'm saying is that there is a preponderance of evidence that suggests that this should be investigated. And the reason why I, I think it should be investigated, and I think if there are any congressional hearings, this needs to be the absolute focus of any intense investigation by congressmen and senators, is because if it's true, the Congress has been lied to. Presidents yeah. have been lied to. Presidents have been allowed to put out a press release, notably Obama in 2011, flatly denying any knowledge of recovered extraterrestrial technology or contact with extraterrestrial life. I don't know if that press release is sustainable, even in the weight of what the Pentagon has now admitted. Mm. Um, you know, we're now in completely new territory where... You know, the, the Defence Department of the United States has admitted this is real. There is a technology craft 
that are operating in our skies, oceans, and orbit, which is beyond known human science. And then I have experts inside the defense intelligence infrastructure of the United States telling me that indeed they have recovered technology. Now, the reason I'm cautious is because one of the things I'm wise to, if you know your Cold War history, is it could very well be that one of the scientists that cooperated with me took his letter from me to the Defence Department mm. and they've deliberately fed a line to me through multiple sources to get me excited, to leave me either underwhelmed by the level of development that the United States has made into this technology or to perhaps even give a, a, a bit of a warning shot to the US's allies to suggest that, yes, they may indeed be more advanced than you think and just possibly you know, you guys from Russia or China are a bit not screw with us because we're actually in possession of technology that you wouldn't right. even know, know how to deal with. So there is always that risk that mm -hmm. as a journalist, I've been fed a line by sources. And I, for that reason, I, I just cannot be declaratory that I'm being told the truth. But I am instructed by the fact that one of the world's most eminent newspapers, the New York Times, in an article written by our friends Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal in April last year, they ran a, a scientist with the reputation and eminence of Dr. Eric Davis, yes. reporting that he had briefed Congress about craft being recovered by the United States that are not of this world. Congress has been told that. And I followed that up. I ended up talking to a congressman's um, staffer who confirmed to, to me that his congressman had indeed been briefed by Dr. Eric Davis that the United States government is in possession of technology that is not of this world. So that claim is clearly in circulation. Well, this is, the, this it, is, uh, sorry, go on. That's right. No, that's fine. That's no, fine. I was just going to say that, you know, this is the, the, the problematic bifurcation in narratives because you have, you know, the UAPTF report essentially saying, we don't know what these things are. It could even be temperature inversions or ice crystals, and we just we just don't know. At the same time, you've got people within Congress being briefed on the retrieval of off-world vehicles. You've got high-ranking officials talking to you, at least former officials, saying that they were even involved in these programs. And it, you know, it does make me wonder just how far down the trajectory line is the addressing of things like retrievals because you know from at least the the front facing public's perspective we just don't know what this is we don't have anything uh, to explain this well I, i'll tell you what i'm worried about what i'm really worried about is whoever it is that's trying to control the narrative i, I was expecting the uap task force to be a little more declaratory about mm. the mystery yeah and less prosaic possible explanations because we know already the US Air Force, the United States Navy, the Defense Department, the Office of the Undersecretary for Defense Intelligence, they've ruled out those prosaic explanations already. The, the work's being done. Mm. You know, it's it's silly to have this silly argument that it might be ice crystals or um, misapprehensions of some prosaic data. We know it's not. I mean, Mitt Romney said as much today when he said that um, we know it's not American technology, Russian technology, or Chinese technology. The, the obvious inference is that it's an intelligence that's not human. And my worry is that what's happening here is 
there are forces inside the military intelligence complex of the United States who are trying to control the narrative to stop the public, one, from holding them to account for the lies and crimes committed in the past 75 years. They've deliberately started the investigation for the UAP task force from 2004, the date of the Nimitz incident, mm -hmm. as if it all suddenly ha happened from that date. Right. And, and even the US Air Force put out a... Um, put out a press release basically saying it was now going to start investigating this issue because, by oh. golly, no, what a hell, <laughs> we've discovered a problem. Gosh, yeah. we had no idea. And yet if yeah. you go back through your history, the US Air Force particularly has been at the absolute forefront yes. of the cover-up. Yes. You know, And I, I suspect that if there is a technology that's being held inside the US government, which I doubt, by the way, mm. I think it's more likely being held private. in private aerospace. Yeah. yeah. I think there are people, though, in the U.S. Air Force who know full well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I think the the difficulty is is that they have presided over what is fundamentally a criminal cover up. I mean, the story of Paul Benowitz is the story of a crime right. committed yeah. against a U.S. citizen, illegal spying against a U.S. citizen. Um, uh, you know, monitoring uh, just most outrageous pressure that drove a man to commit suicide. Um, you know, the number of crimes that would have been committed in the past seven decades to try and keep this quiet. And so rolling back a bit, maybe, just maybe, there's a very good reason for why they are keeping it quiet. And, and this is what I was told by people on my most recent visit to the United States. I was told that the Russians have recovered their own technology, craft, and that they are doing an active re-engineering program in a facility somewhere in the Ural Mountains, which is in the middle of buttfuck nowhere, way out in Wapin, um, Russia. What I'm being told is that the Chinese are playing catch up, that they are actively trying to find out what the US has and what the Russians have got, um, but that the Russians do have a craft or, or something equating to a craft, and right. that the Americans have multiple. And um, I'm told that literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars is and has been expended on trying yeah. to yeah. master this technology. And, you know, the funny thing about this is, as I'm saying this, I have no doubt at all there will be some fuckwit from um, the science side of things or the, the military government side of things who says, this is just a load of bullshit. This journalist has bought into a paranoid conspiracy theory held by a fringe group of ufologists. Let them say it. Uh, the bottom line is I'm in a position now to be reasonably sure from my sources that that's the case. And the, um, the, the interesting thing is I think that what's going on, rolling right back even to the US Air Force's engagement with Tom DeLonge and TTSA to the Stars Academy, this has all been an attempt to control the narrative, to yes. constrain how much the American public, the international public is told. Because I don't think, I think any craft is the crown jewels. It's mm -hmm. worth yes, lying it about it. If I was the US president and I knew that my country had a craft that represents technology thousands of years in the future and that we're pouring resources and trying to master that technology, I would lie about it. I yeah. would conceal it as long as I could. It's it's like the Manhattan Project of the 21st century right. because you would know if you can crack that technology, 
you are light years ahead of your rivals. Yes. And yes. the Russians and the Chinese know that. So there is this battle going on in private between nation states fighting over yeah. who develops this technology first. Well, th and this I is think what's this called an ace in the hole technology, isn't it? You know, Absolutely. And so I think that what this is all about is there's a very clear attempt with the UAP report to try and constrain the narrative as being from 2004. And I understand that everything that was recovered was recovered well beyond 2004. I understand that um, whatever craft or uh, non-terrestrial materials that were recovered were put into the possession of the Department of Energy, not mm -hmm. the US Air Force. Yeah, yeah. And that the Department of Energy, around about the end of the Cold War, handed control of those assets, as the Admiral Wilson document attests, which to we will get into, aerospace, to a private aerospace company. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm in absolutely no doubt about the authenticity of the Admiral Wilson document. And uh, because of people who you know that I know, um, yeah. have basically confirmed the provenance of that document to me that it absolutely came from the estate of Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And um, it's a highly cogent explication of what I believe is the case, that, that there is in the possession of private aerospace, a technology that is far beyond known human science. Mm -hmm.